From the moon to Mars, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis missions aim to return humans to the lunar surface for the first time in nearly half a century. But the agency doesn't want to stop there. These moon missions of today are paving the way for astronaut missions to places like Mars and beyond. We'll take a look at the long-term plans for astronauts in deep space and how Artemis is leading the charge. Plus, scientists say NASA's Perseverance rover has made its most exciting discovery on Mars in its search for signs of life on the Red Planet. One of the things we're really interested in, of course, is the preservation of organic matter. And one of the really exciting things we've recently discovered is uh, a whole outcrop or a span of rock that seems to have a decent amount of organic matter. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Teams at NASA are working to get the Artemis 1 mission off the ground. Issues with the SLS rocket have prevented the mission from launching from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The Artemis 1 mission's success is critical for NASA's lunar ambitions, like landing humans on the moon by 2025 and establishing a science base on the lunar surface. It's also critical in NASA's plans beyond the moon. And here to talk more about those ambitions and how NASA's Artemis program fits in is Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on again. So Laura, we've, we've, we've spent a few episodes uh, these past few weeks and months talking about the short-term goals of NASA's Artemis program, right? The certifying Artemis and or SLS and Orion for, for humans that will eventually put humans in the capsule, then to the surface of the moon. But let's talk longer term. Um, with the Artemis campaign, the goal is to have a permanently permanent sustained presence on the moon. What is that going to look like? We don't yet know. Uh, NASA has not put out an official position. If you speak with the former NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstein, his vision of sustainability was to have the ability to put humans on the moon anytime we want. Um, If you talk to NASA today, they might say, Bill Nelson actually said, it might not be 365 days that we're there. But I think longer term, it will be an international collaboration with, for example, the Moon Village concept in the European Space Agency, or um, some of the concepts of commercial partnerships, such as using Starship and turning SpaceX's Starship vehicle into uh, infrastructure for a lunar base. So we don't know how this is going to play out. It's sort of open to see what happens. Mm -hmm. We don't know precisely what will happen, but this term sustainability and long-term sustainability comes up a lot. What does that mean? It means different things. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It means different things to other people, to, to every party, right? But why is it so important, just that idea of sustainability? Yes, it does mean different things to different people. But the concept is that we don't want this to be like Apollo, where we go a few times and then stop and don't return for another 50 years. We want this to be a natural extension of humanity outwards into the solar system. And for that to happen, it needs to be sustainable. And that does mean different things. It could be uh, financial or political sustainability, where um, we had geopolitical reasons for beating the Soviets to the moon, but we didn't really have other reasons 
reasons. And once we did that, once we met that goal, there wasn't a reason to stay. Um, so now we have um, international partnerships. We have these Artemis Accords, which is uh, you know multilateral agreements with right now 21 signatories. We have um, this sort of competition with China and to a lesser degree with Russia. So we do have geopolitical sustainability at this time. Financial sustainability, programmatic sustainability might be in question. How expensive is this? How much taxpayer dollars is this going to cost? And, and what's the return on the citizens of the United States? And then there's economic sustainability. If we want this to be something sustainable for the commercial sector, there needs to be profit. So what kind of profit can be made, um, you know, ethically, <laughs> you know, um, whether that's mining the moon for resources or whether that is providing services for tourists or government agencies or other ways that companies can make money. And then there is environmental sustainability, which is not talked about enough. But the moon, although it is, you know, a whole other world, it is a a finite resource. Um, and so we want to be careful to maintain the um, environment that we have there on the moon for, um, you know, ethical reasons. Um, there is disagreement about how much we should be messing with the moon, for example. I, I know that there are some scientists who would like to maintain its, its uh, nature so we can study the Earth-Moon system. And then there's, of course, others who want to develop it. Um, and right now we have an agreement where certain areas are protected, such as heritage sites, you know, the footprints on the moon from Apollo 11, for example. But other areas might want to be protected as well. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I mean, is there some sort of international treaty or law that says what we can or cannot do at the moon? Or is this something that has to be done as these countries and these actors and these commercial players are making moves towards the moon? When does the regulation come in? Yeah, so most space players are signatories of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which does dictate not just how we act on the moon, but how we act in space in general and celestial bodies and, and you know, out there, you know, not making making sure we don't have nuclear weapons in space, for example, and also, you know, due regard to each other's activities and, and a whole load of other you know, legal terms. There is something called the Moon Treaty, which was signed by some space players, but not the United States. And it's largely seen as not relevant anymore because the United States and certain other um, major players did not sign it. There's the Artemis Accords, which is based on the Outer Space Treaties, which does say things like protecting those heritage sites and, and other norms of behavior so that we can you know, cooperate and, and act with um, a means of not being uh, misunderstanding each other in space so that we don't accidentally <laughs> create wars or conflicts in space. And whether there needs to be another type of agreement is to be seen. It might be in the future another treaty. Right now, there's there's no treaty <laughs> that is going to pass. But there is discussion in the United Nations especially about how we should act in space and how we should cooperate, not just on the moon, but out in the in space in general. Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to lead us to where NASA wants to go next. What are the longer term goals for NASA when it comes to after the moon, life after lunar exploration? For many decades now, it has been moon to Mars and beyond. And that has changed through administrations. But even if you read like the newspapers after the Apollo 11 landing, right, that uh, mentality was we're going to Mars next. Like we, we humans, not just the robots, but we humans are going to Mars next. That was the thinking back then. And that's the thinking now is that we are learning to live and work in space, first in low Earth orbit, then on the moon because it's, it's the closest celestial body near us, and then on 
onward to Mars and beyond. And it's that beyond part that is so curious to me. We have found so many interesting planetary bodies in our solar system, moons around Jupiter and Saturn, you know, Pluto Charon system. I mean, there's just so many really cool places that we could go. Some maybe not some cool for humans, <laughs> but um, there there might be ways that we can expand where we go based on the technology that we develop. And I'm looking forward to seeing within our lifetimes where we, we go. And even if it's just, you know, outwards into space with space hotels or free floating space stations, I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing how we explore the solar system. Mm -hmm. But Mars is that kind of horizon goal, right? I mean, that that's the logical next step after the moon. What challenges exist in human exploration of Mars? And how might these Artemis missions help us prepare uh, for a trip of that scale and challenge. Yeah, so the moon is a worthy destination in its own right. But one of the reasons that we are going is to learn how to operate on a body that has um, no real atmosphere. It has much lower gravity. It has this um, regulus, you know, dirt and dust environment that is really harsh on, you know, all the equipment that we send. Um, there's the radiation that, you know, our Earth's atmosphere, our magnetosphere, protects us from a lot of the harm outwards in space. And without that protection on the moon, um, it's really challenging to live. So we're going to learn all of that, as well as learning how to do a closed system as we have on space station. Uh, you know, that's a closed system to recycle our water, to recycle, you know, everything that we need to live, our air. You know, how do we, how do we have this um, ecosystem outward outside of Earth. And we're going to take all of that and we're going to apply it to Mars. Mars is a different body, but it is still a very harsh body. And so by learning to live on these harsh um, you know, realities outside of Earth, where you think of the harshest place on Earth, you know, the Antarctic, you know, places, they, they are more likely to sustain life than you know, any place else in the solar system. So that's what we need to learn. We need to learn how to go where humans aren't meant to go and then to adapt that environment and to adapt ourselves from using technology to those environments. Mm -hmm. Laura Forsick, how, how far out are we from those human missions to Mars? Can you, can you give me a time or an estimate or something that, that you're thinking? Oh, no one can do that. But it is a really big goal for NASA. And it's not only a big goal for government agencies, it's a big goal for the private sector too. For example, Elon Musk founded SpaceX with the premise of going and sending humans to Mars. And there are other private companies as well that want to go to Mars, as well as other international partners. And so this is definitely something that we're working towards. With space, in, in the space industry, it always takes much longer than you anticipated, much more expensive. Um, so if I had to guess, I would say somewhere in the 2030s or 40s is probably where I'm going to have that first mission. A lot of people are yelling right now to that I'm wrong, and, and that's okay. <laughs> um, I'm hoping sooner, but we're just going to have to see. Even with that extended time, I mean, that's something within our lifetime, you and I. I mean, that that's pretty wild to think about, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's very exciting. I'm really, I mean, I wasn't alive to see the Apollo lunar landings, but that, you know, in a sense, it has been done before. We've done it, and I'm looking forward to seeing Artemis three do it again. We have never been to Mars. We have never stepped foot on it. Mars is a lot more like Earth in terms of the size of the planet. It does have a little bit of an atmosphere. It, If you, like, squint and do some color correction, Mars images sort of look like Earth images. Um, we have a whole planet filled with robots, and we want to go and send people there too. 
Mm -hmm. and, and finally, I get this question a lot, Laura, I'm sure you do too, but you know, why? Why is it so important that we put humans on Mars? You mentioned we have all these robots exploring it. Why risk it? Why spend the money um, to put people on a planet that obviously doesn't want us there? <laughs> it's very harsh and a terrible place to live. Why go? We're explorers. Why do we go anywhere? We go because we can. We go because we're called to. We go because there is a reason that we can explore and better ourselves in the process. Um, the technology that we're using to explore the moon and Mars, it is the same technology we're bringing back to Earth and applying to better our lives on Earth. And so it's one of those things that's a feedback loop. The more we go out and learn about ourselves and learn new technologies and new science, the better we can understand ourselves and apply it to our lives on Earth. Mm -hmm. And finally, for real this time, um, we've got, we're talking about Mars, but before we can get to Mars, we have to get to the moon. And before we can send humans to the moon, we've got to launch Artemis 1, which is facing a critical cryogenics test this week. What are you looking for in 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 this this week leading up to a potential launch opportunity? And how optimistic are you that that this mission leaves the ground this year? I'm optimistic that it leaves the ground this year, not so much this month. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking for um, whether they, they fixed that hydrogen leak. That was a major leak of the SLS system, uh, and they were right to abort that launch. And so I'm looking to see whether they think that the safety criteria has met if they continue to do these tests and then bring it down to where it needs to be. Laura Forsick is a space policy analyst and founder of the firm Astrolytical. Thank you so much again for joining us, Laura. Thanks for having me again. Still to come, NASA's latest Martian explorer has made an exciting discovery on the red planet in its search for signs of ancient life. Are We There Yet is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. From the moon to Mars, scientists say NASA's Perseverance rover has made its most exciting discovery on Mars since landing, a sample of rock with the highest concentration of organic matter. Perseverance's mission is to search for ancient signs of life on Mars and to prepare samples of Martian rocks and dirt to send back to Earth. So could this material help science answer the question, was there life on Mars? To talk more about the findings and the mission, we're joined by Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and a Perseverance mission scientist. Amy, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's such a joy to join you every time. Thank you. I was going to say, every time you come on, there's something new and exciting happening on Mars, and today's no exception. What is what is Perseverance up to now what have the, the scientists like yourself working on this campaign found that is just super fascinating? So uh, we are exploring the Jezero Delta, which is one of the major features. We came to Jezero Crater to um, explore with the Perseverance mission. And uh, what's come out most recently on our press briefing is um, discussing these really unique rocks that we found within the Delta. And, you know, deltas are these features that are made when water from a river flows into a lake. And as the, the river water slows down when it reaches that slack water of the lake, uh, all of that sediment settles out. And so you end up with this large geologic structure made up of sedimentary rocks that um, contains basically the story of all of those sediments being brought into the lake, um, where those rocks originally came from actually tells you about regions far further away from Jezero than we may ever get to explore. 
And in, within all of that, um, one of the things we're really interested in, of course, is the preservation of organic matter. And one of the really exciting things we've recently discovered is uh, a whole outcrop or a span of rock that seems to have a decent amount of organic matter. That's super exciting. But, and, but before we get into what type of organic matter you found, can you just remind us how Perseverance is able to make these detections, right? Because you're eventually going to get these samples back on Earth and, and, and test them in your lab. But how do how do you know today that there are organic samples in, in, in or, or organic material in these samples? That's a great question. So the instrument suite on board Perseverance is meant to triage our um, our exploration, help us pick the best samples for the Mars sample return program. And so the instrument that's capable of detecting organic matter on Perseverance is called um, Sherlock. And so there, Sherlock uh, has a couple of different capabilities. One of the things it can do is look at um, fluorescence. And the other thing it can do is, is uh, use deep UV Raman to search for organic matter. And um, when we used this instrument, on, on uh, one of our targets in this area called Wildcat Ridge, we actually saw a, a really extensive um, fluorescence signal, which is indicative of the presence of organic matter. Okay. I did not read that as uh, Raman when I was reading the press briefing. <laughs> in my head, I was calling Ramen, it Raman. <laughs> like the meal. <laughs> so, so you found this organic material. What, what do you think it is? What could it be? Oh, goodness. So um, these different techniques give us different kinds of information about organic matter. And Sherlock is really good at telling us if the organic matter is uh, made up in ring structures or if, um, you know, it has sort of different conformations. And so what we can say is that it looks like it's related to these uh, single and maybe double ring structures um, we call these aromatics in, in the organic chemistry world. Um, when you want to get down to even greater detail than that, though, you do tend to need different instrumentation. And so that's where Mars sample return is going to be so instrumental. Uh, it's going to be so important for us to understand the details behind these organics. But the fact that they are there and preserved just millimeters below the surface um, is is really compelling and very exciting given the the environmental context in which we found them. Mm -hmm. I mean, scientists thought that this would be one of the best places to find these organic materials, but it seems like you are finding an abundance of these organic materials, right? I mean, is, is this is this region exceeding your expectations of what you would find there? Oh, for me, any detection is just the most exciting thing every single day. And and uh, this detection at Wildcat Ridge is actually the highest that we've we've seen on the entire mission so far. And so, yeah, when you you see you do see little detections here and there in the crater floor. And as we're starting to ascend the delta, we didn't really have any data. And you get to this beautiful outcrop. And all of the fluorescent signal just lights up like a Christmas tree, and you say, "Okay, this is this is different and unique." Mm -hmm. In in the NASA release that I read from from JPL, it said that these spatially correlated molecules, as as you were describing, could be it correlates with sulfate minerals. Can you explain why that's important and and why these sulfates are super exciting to find possible evidence of of them within the material. Yes, so when you think about organic matter, 
you know, what's really important is the environmental context. And as a geologist, you know, one of the really great things I can do is, is look at a rock and be able to deconvolve how it formed and, and the processes that it's experienced. So the really cool thing about Wildcat Ridge and sort of the outcrop that it's within that we call um, Hogwallow Flats has um, a mixture of kind of mud and some sand and also these sulfates, which probably precipitated as salts within this kind of uh, evaporating salt lake. So uh, maybe this is one of those instances where Jezero Lake was actually starting to evaporate down to a, a pretty um, dense brine. And so you have this unique environment where if you saw this on Earth, you would definitely expect to see organic matter and uh, evidence of life. Now, of course, we're always searching for that evidence on Mars and haven't yet found it, but we found an environment that would preserve it and we found evidence for organic matter. And so this is just setting us up to have this really compelling environment to be able to ask those questions. Is there life on Mars? Was there life on Mars? And one of the ways we can do that is bringing these samples home. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to do that while it's on Mars? Like, is Would there be a way that you could use the equipment that is on Perseverance to make that detection? Or is it is it imperative that these samples come back home for to make such a claim that there <laughs> there is evidence of of ancient life on Mars. I think I think you've really hit on it at the end there that you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's what we like to rely on and I still think it's very true. Such a paradigm shifting discovery, you're going to need all the lines of evidence to feel confident in that statement. Um, and so while while we have a very powerful instrument suite on Perseverance to triage these samples and to determine which ones are really compelling, um, I think I and, and many other astrobiologists would, would definitely pause to say that you could detect, um, you know, a, a true... I'm not even to say that you could detect a true biosignature. I think if you ran across a snail shell, right, which we don't expect to do, that would that would really stop us in our rover tracks. Um, but to be able to make a claim for evidence for ancient life on Mars, I think for us to feel comfortable and confident in that assessment, that sample return truly is the only way to feel the, the level of confidence any of us would really, really want. Unless you found like a snail shell or an old cell phone or something, right? Then you can make this. Yeah, claims, there right? you go. <laughs> you know, I keep thinking about like future interstellar explorers who go to Mars and they find our wrecked dead rovers and they find all of our, you know, landing gear that's blown around the, the surface and just think, you know, like, man, these previous tourists, they really, they really didn't take care of the place. I want to go back, uh, Amy, because we have talked about this, but it is it is fascinating. So Wildcat Ridge is where you found this. Um, how do scientists like yourself identify these places before you start drilling? How, how did what was so compelling about this region for, for you all to send the rover there and, and operate and, and grab these samples? Oh, what a great question. Um, so yeah, so part of uh, developing the Delta campaign, that's one of the things I've gotten, uh, I've been able to do over the past year, um, is we have these, these fabulous orbiters that can take incredibly high resolution images of the surface of Mars. And that's what we have to work on to decide, you know, where we're going to explore because you have really high resolution with these imagers, but when you get, you know, wheels on the ground, 
that level of detail is is so much more nuanced. Um, and it gives you a way to kind of ground truth what you thought you were seeing from, from the orbital images and our orbital mineralogic data. So when you look at the delta, um, there's really only two places that we thought were appropriate to ascend onto the delta, um, sort of in this region. And when you look at the, the outcrop wildcat ridge is in, it's called Hogwallow Flats. And the funny origin for this is that the, um, the sort of nickname we had for it was the bacon strip because it kind of looks like a strip of bacon, sort of this white mottled appearance that sticks out of the, the sort of surrounding red dusty outcrop and, and um, regolith. And so to stick with that uh, porcine origin, you know, we went with Hogwallow Flats, um, which is a, a real name from a real place on Earth. And so it's one of those places that it really stood out. And we had many hypotheses about what it might be. You know, we, we were thinking we were seeing sulfates. We were at the toe of the delta. So we thought maybe it's fine grain material. And, you know, we get up there and it is this mudstone that's loaded with sulfate salt. So one of those really exciting moments when something that you think you're going to see from orbit, you end up actually being able to see. Plus, it has that cherry on top of abundant organic matter detection from Sherlock. Mm -hmm. A tasty or sizzling discovery, you could say, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> finally, finally, Amy, I mean, every time we chat, and it seems that we're chatting more and more frequently during this mission because there are so many exciting things to talk about. The sample collection, there's, there is a finite amount of these vials, right? These things to put the samples in are... are you all concerned that you're getting to a point where you actually have too much stuff that you want to collect and you have to figure out what is what is the most important stuff to bring back? How does that process work? Yeah. So I would say, so there, I've never been at the point where I'm like, oh, we have too many samples. It's, it's definitely <laughs> always, gosh, there's so many things we want to sample. How are we going to down select to get everything in there? Um, you know, the the I guess one of the good things about the Mars sample return architecture and the time frame we have, we kind of know how long we have to collect samples. And so that helps us say, you know, divvy out, we're going to do this many samples in this part of the cam campaign, that many samples in the next part. And there's flexibility, right? If you find the snail shell, you're going to use another tube that maybe you had originally thought you would save for something else. Um, but yeah, you know, I could spend my whole career just looking at these like first, you know, hundred beaters of the Delta front. And that would be, that would be it. That'd be my life's work. And there's so much more that we are going to explore. So yeah, it's definitely a matter of, you know, we need to collect our full sample cash suite um, to, to be able to fulfill our sample return. And it's always going to be a matter of what are the most important samples that show us diversity of Mars that help us try to address our questions about astrobiology and geology. That's always the balance we're trying to strike in, in filling up these, these 43 tubes. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure I will have you back on sooner rather than later to talk about the next newest discovery. Uh, Amy Williams is a University of Florida astrobiologist and a scientist on the Perseverance mission. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brendan. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. More of our space coverage is online at WMFE.org slash space. 
and support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Become a contributor to this show and all the other great shows on 90.7 WMFE News this week by visiting WMFE.org or by calling 1-800-785-2020. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.